What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, we're in the episode 90-something of the podcast, so uh, not exactly a new uh, podcast anymore. But for those of you out there just listening for the first time, basically what this podcast is, is uh, I invite an author on to discuss a, a book of theirs that's been uh, newly published or recently published, something uh, on something we think you guys would like to hear a uh, conversation about, a discussion about, and that uh, hopefully at the end of the podcast or uh, even in the middle of the podcast, uh, if you get your druthers about you, you go ahead and uh, give the book a purchase yourself and then give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at, at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show and also by sharing with your friends as that's the best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. Paul Kennedy, and Dr. Kennedy is the J. Richardson Dilworth Professor of History, a distinguished fellow of the Brady Johnson Program in Grand, in Grand Strategy, and Director of International Security Studies at Yale University. He is also a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, the American Philosophical Society, and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And he was made Commander of the Order of the British Empire in 2000 for services to history, and elected a Fellow of the British Academy in 2003. He is the author of 19, or editor of 19 books, including The Rise of the Anglo-German Antagonism, 1860-1914, The Rise and Fall of British Naval Mastery, uh, Strategy and Diplomacy, 1870-1945, uh, The Parliament of Man, The Past, Present, and Future of the United Nations, Engineers of Victory, The Problem Solvers Who Turned the Tide in the Second World War, and lastly, a little book you probably never heard of because it definitely didn't sell a bajillion copies and become one of the most influential history books written in the in the latter half of the 20th century, uh, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, Economic Change and Military Conflict from 1500 to two, uh, 2000. I'm being facetious, of course. Uh, uh, that's a very uh, incredibly well-known book. Anyway, uh, lastly, he is the author of Victory at Sea, Naval Power and the Transformation of the Global Order in World War II, which was published back in April by the Yale University Press, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Kennedy, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you, Tim. Nice to be on your podcast. Thank you. All right. So, um, so what made you want to write this book? The uh, uh, it's not only uh, the book. I'm, I might add, the book is not only your words, but it also contains uh, almost uh, 60, I believe, almost about 60 paintings by a friend of yours, a man named Ian Marshall. Um, but uh, the genesis of this book is, you know, uh, rather unfortunate, rather rather sad. Why don't you uh, tell everybody uh, how this book came to be? I will indeed. Thanks for giving me the chance to do it. Uh, Ian Marshall was a relatively well-known marine maritime artist in this country who had done, who had been president of the American Marine Artists Association, had done a number of uh, other books which were, you might say, coffee table books, were illustrated books of uh, ironclads at sea, of, of uh, British liners going to India, passages east, another book on 
on uh, flying planes, uh, on um, seaplanes, I mean, and uh, was asked to put together a book on uh, and and write, of course, his and compose his wonderful paintings on aircraft carriers of all nations in the Second World War, which would go into the newly refurbished USS Intrepid Museum in New York Harbor. That particular project fell through, nothing of Ian's doing, but he couldn't help uh, shaking his head at the fact that he'd invested so much in these paintings of warships of the Second World War set in particular circumstances like the Grand Harbor of Malta or or coming down the East River in, in New York. So I offered to write a forward to what might be a book of his on fighting warships of the Second World War and was willing at a little later stage to produce more of a text for that book. But unfortunately, uh, some Christmas times ago, uh, Ian had a major stroke, passed away in his kitchen, and the project was put on hold. It either could go forward with me taking it over and writing and completing the whole work, integrating his many paintings and getting maps and other stuff for this book, or it could be folded up and I could keep on with what I was planning to do back in 2017-18, which is to turn around to maybe looking at a second edition or reflections on my book, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. But wanting to complete Ian's work and thinking that the painting should not be, you know, should be available for many more people to see, I got in touch with Yale University Press, which is probably the best publisher for doing illustrated, wonderful color, multi-laminated paintings, and asked if they would join me in continuing this work forward. So it has appeared with the Yale Press this past April, May, as Victory at Sea, deliberately choosing the name of that wonderful television series on the uh, American Navy at sea in the 1950s, and then turned it into this, this illustrated book on sea power in the Second World War and the shifts in the global balances underneath the story of ships and actions. Yeah, great. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, I have to say, uh, tip of the hat to Yale University Press. It's a very, very uh, uh, beautiful book. Definitely, <laughs> uh, definitely the most beautiful book I've I've uh, uh, done on the podcast, and it's uh, a wonderful, um, a wonderful, wonderful piece of work that they put together. Here. Well, Tim, if I may interrupt, since our since our many distinguished listeners are in, are book people interested in books. If they get uh, a hold of Victory at Sea, their first response will probably be, wow, this is a very heavy book. Mm. It, it's it's weighty, not, a, not that I'm claiming the weightiness of my text, but it's <laughs> weighty because Yale University Press has a very special way of putting these original paintings in as it is uh, accurate and, and illustrative uh, form possible by having each of the paint each of the pages which have the paintings on them are actually thin laminated multi pages 
uh, stuck together, all like the wafers of a of of a, a computer chip. So the original um, primary color of black is first of all laid on 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 the on on the page, and then the next p- color of blue comes on the page, and so mm-hmm. you have slightly thicker pages throughout, and the end result is a book which weighs about four pounds uh, because of the, the the way in which the the um, illustrative painting technique is is integrated in the text itself. Mm. Yeah, I have to say, um, I probably spent uh, nearly as much time uh, just uh, you know taking in the the paintings in the book you know as I did. Uh, actually reading the book um and but you know i'm uh i've always loved um uh going you know seeing uh these big ships in person and going on these ships uh you know i've been to um you know a few uh the new jersey uh the alabama the uh the yorktown the the laffey the uh uh wisconsin the missouri uh, the, the HMS Belfast in, in London. Um, I've always enjoyed uh, visiting these ships and just uh, getting a feel for them walking around. And there's uh, yes. there's something, uh, no disrespect to uh, the aircraft carriers or <laughs> anybody who uh, served on an aircraft carrier, but there's there's uh, nothing like um, uh those big uh, battle wagons. There's um, the battleships. There's something uh, uniquely imposing and uh, beautiful in a way <laughs> on those ships that yes. uh, are just uh, not quite so of any other ship. There's a wonderful painting of the ends of uh, the British 14-inch uh, gunned battleship, the Duke of York, I think it is. Standing out clear of one of the Scottish Western Island ports, mm. Pentland Firth, uh, with a sort of Turneresque background to it, and a U.S. Uh, Greer-class destroyer there to escort it. It's around about 1943 in the war, mm. and that looks absolutely superb. And the, another favorite mm. of mine is of the a well-known British a six-inch cruiser, the HMS Belfast, who was part of Force uh, Force H, which operated out of out of Gibraltar for many years, standing clear of a rock of Gibraltar, and it's uh, one of the most uh, beautiful and exquisite paintings that I think I've seen. It's probably my favorite. I much regret it's one of Ian's paintings, which has been purchased by hmm. somebody else. Uh, do you know? Did he base those paintings on photographs, or um... he had from his early stages on work? He he had a, a studio up in Southwest Harbor, Maine, for many mm-hmm. years, and then moved to uh, into um, New Hampshire. Uh, he had a, uh, I think, a retired naval officer in London who did a lot of research on in the British uh, Library, British Museum, on newspaper clippings of the time. So when he does this painting of uh, HMS Anson coming down the River Tyne, being towed out to sea after it's been built by Vickers Armstrong in 1941-42, the background of the 
many shipyards of the town of Walkerville and of Walls End, etc., mm. are really ex- extraordinarily accurate because of the way in which he got the research done about the. It's it's not just the ship and it's not just the sky and the waves. It's the historical circumstance as mm. well, and it's his accuracy with regard to uh, warships was quite phenomenal. Yeah, uh, he he knew so so much more about I than I and many of my my pals over here. He just just had this. He he was a sort of walking Jane's all the world's fighting ships. Mm. Um, in, in his brain. Mm, yeah, that's great. Okay, um, uh, let's get to the, I guess, the text of the book itself, or the theme of the book. So, um, obviously the book is uh, a history of the World War II at sea, uh, maritime history of, the, of World War II at sea. Or, um, but it's a work that um, uh, it's in line with um, your... Uh, other published works, and especially uh, the rise and fall of the great powers, at that it grapples with the largest story um, with the rise and fall of the great powers in recent times. Yes, yeah, the, the structure of the book is a is a, is a somewhat odd one. You might say it looks like designed by the the people who designed the camel. Uh, there are the <laughs> basic unfolding narrative with painting. Stories of the Second World War at sea, chapters four, five, six, and seven, and then again nine and ten to the, take the story into 1944-45. Uh, the beginning of the book has two uh, additional chapters. Uh, one is on elements of it's called navies and warships of 1939. It's meant to be an introduction to the general reader of what we are talking about here. What a what are heavy cruisers? What are battle cruisers, etc.? And which navies have uh, strengths and weaknesses in, in all of these categories? A, a further chapter, which is on geography, economics, and naval theorists. Again, I put that in as an introduction so that people, when they get reference to a Mahanian strategy of a big battle, mm-hmm. uh, battle fleet and the big contestations of a battle, they... They should know what it's about. The second thing which is inserted into the structure of this book is a chapter eight, which is not about navies at all or battles at all. It is an analysis of the underlying shift in the productive forces of the great powers, especially around the central year of 1943. And this is where, if you read that chapter eight, you say, all right, this is, this is Kennedy going back to rise and fall of the great powers, mm. uh, military conflict, but economic change, economic transformation. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, uh, one other thing. Um, what was, uh, tell everybody the influence of uh, Fernand Braudel, the, the French historian, on, on the book. Tim, I, I have been for many years, I imagine many readers here have also been intrigued by Asking a question, could one take the methodology of the great uh, French historian of 70 years ago, Fernand Braudel, when he writes his stunning books on um, the Mediterranean and Mediterranean policy in the age of Philip II, could you take Braudel's interest in 
understanding history and historical change as being, roughly speaking, at three levels of uh, analysis. The lowest level, the bottom level, is the unchanging, uh, the sort of history profound, as he calls it, the unchanging circumstances, say the geography of the Mediterranean, the tides, the seasons, the coming of winter. Uh, The middle level is the activity of human beings coming in and out of their ports, uh, exporting their olive oil, getting the wine, uh, and just moving in it, the sheep going up the hillside in May and coming down the hillsides and mountains, transhumans in, in October. And the top level for Brodel of historical change and understanding was, was what he calls the, the history of events. He wasn't meant to be dismissive here. He meant things like the Battle of Lepanto or the Spanish Armada, but the world went on, slowly changing, as it were. Could could we modern historians try to look at historical uh, reality in the 20th century and see what were the unchanging elements of our story, say, in the Battle of the Atlantic? There's no way of, of altering the the distance between Newfoundland and Glasgow. There's no way of altering the extraordinarily violent winter storms of that period. Mm. Um, But there are changes which happen which are going to transform or turn around that story of uh, the unchanging part of things because of the, say, the introduction by 1943 of the very long-range B-24 Coastal Command uh, liberators to try to cover the air gap in the central uh, Atlantic. There are the battles themselves, particular ones like the convoy ONS-5, which is uh, truly significant in the way it, for the first time, can detect U-boats on the water and sink them in large numbers. So, yes, I'm trying to introduce, and I'd be interested to learn from other historians whether this is a bit a success or kind of clumsy, cack-handed way, can one do a sort of Brodellian look at uh, the Second World War and see what are the unchanging parts of this, of the tale and what are the fast-moving history of events? Mm. Okay. okay, so um, so set the, I guess set the stage for us a little bit at the beginning of the war. So the you look at the... Uh, the navies of the the six great powers at the time, or yeah. naval powers at the time, uh, which would be uh, obviously the British Empire, uh, the United States, uh, Imperial Japan, uh, Nazi Germany, uh, Fascist Italy, and then uh, the French, I think the Third Republic, I believe. Um, so this, those six nations, uh, which really dwarf, uh, you know, uh, all the rest of the navies of the world. Uh, what did these navies look like in 1939, and what did uh, the naval leadership uh, in these countries look like at this time? Those uh, those people that crafted uh, naval policy and naval strategy. It's a very very small cadre, a small group of of men who are going to be making uh, crafting uh, policy and strategy. So unlike this, the story of the naval balances and the and the sort of lopsided story of sea power in the Cold War with a single great American Navy 
much bigger than anything else and the gasping Soviet Navy trying to get close. This world of navies and admiralties and ships in the years before 1939 is truly a multipolar one. Three large, very large navies of the British, the American, and the Japanese, in some regards, like their battleships, getting up close. And then three medium-sized but substantial navies of France, of the well-designed Italian warships in Mussolini's navy, and then the uh, significant fourth largest navy of the time, the French navy. Each of the admiralties of those navies had to do that eternal juggling act of they have limited budgets from their treasuries. Um, they, the U.S. has at least until the Congress starts to loosen the purse strings after 1940-41. Uh, they have limited budgets, and so they have to say how much of the uh, amount of money we are given for new warship construction will go for the smaller ships or the light and heavy cruisers, how much will go for the battleships, how much for this, at least in the top three navies, how much for this relatively newer warship of the aircraft carrier. And once we've created this navy of such and such number of warships, where do we dispose of them here and there? It's all right, I think, for the French to say, well, if we have a Royal Navy alliance in the Atlantic, we can keep most of our navy off Toulon and Marseille and Algiers to keep an eye on the Italian Navy. But uh, others, like the U.S. Navy itself and the Royal Navy, really do have this geopolitical juggling act. How much of a fleet do we put in the Atlantic? How much do we put in the Pacific? Should it be at San Diego? Should it be out at Pearl? Should it be over in Hong Kong and Manila? Uh, this is the this is the sort of circumstance in the the tentative plans of the admiralties as war breaks out in Europe in September 1939, and three of those navies, the small German navy against the much larger British and French navies, begin the war in Europe. Yeah. So the early war at sea in the European theater, uh, obviously Italy doesn't enter until uh, it's obvious that France <laughs> is uh, on the way out. So it's mostly, uh, I mean, the, the French do play a small part, but most of their fleet is in the Mediterranean. But mostly the early sea war uh, in World War II is between the Royal Navy and the uh, Kriegsmarine, the, uh, the German Navy, in the North Atlantic. It's uh, in two theaters of war. One is the attempts by the Germans to try to disrupt Allied lines of communication. Their their smallish U-boat fleet at the beginning of the war, some of their very limited number of long-range raiding craft, the German pocket battleships or Panzerschiffer, going out into the North and South Atlantic. The second area of battle comes when uh, German land forces and air forces sweep uh, westwards and northwestwards in April, May of 1940, when Hitler orders the attacks upon the Netherlands, Denmark, uh, Norway, uh, Belgium, and France. And the Royal Navy finds itself then in a more difficult circumstance of of fighting off hostile 
held land areas where the Luftwaffe can send out its aircraft to attack ships at sea in close waters, such as Dunkirk, such as in a small degree, even off Norway. Yeah, and then we get the uh, France Falls and then uh, at least the Maritime uh, War, the dominoes, <laughs> the strategic dominoes of that uh, in effect. Well, it, it knocks the, the French Navy out of the war. Italy, uh, with, the, with its substantial uh, naval force in the Mediterranean, comes in and really poses a strategic problem for uh, the Royal Navy. And then, uh, but probably most importantly, it uh, <laughs> it scares the uh, United States Congress into uh, passing the the Two Ocean Navy Act um, and giving the Navy a far larger budget than <laughs> than the Navy had even asked for. So, uh, why don't you tell us the importance of uh, uh, the massive strategic importance of the Two Ocean Navy Act? I will, but let's go back to the, the sure. two or three other remarks you mentioned sure. there. If, if anybody has the interest of pulling up online now, the headlines of the New York Times say in, in May and June 1940, they get ever bigger and bigger and more and more alarmist because of the news coming out of Europe. Good heavens, the Germans have moved westwards and taken the Netherlands and Belgium and Denmark, good heavens, the Germans are up and down the coast of Norway and pushing the British and the French expeditionary forces out of it. There's severe losses of British destroyers, the aircraft carrier and, and whatever. Good heavens, British destroyers trying to rescue the Allied expeditionary forces are being battered to hell by German aerial attacks off Dunkirk. Heavens above, France has fallen and asked for an armistice, heavens above, the Italians have come in, the Royal Navy, the British are fighting for their lives, as it appears, even with this new leadership under Churchill. So we had better go ahead and start passing the bills and the legislation in the Congress for the largest ever increases in the size of the U.S. Navy that have ever been seen before. And in fact, if a Congress, if if the U.S. Navy Department is not asking for enough shifts, it's quite likely that the terrified Congress is going to start doubling the size of the tonnage requested as it happens between June and July of 1940. Uh, so new aircraft carriers galore, the Essex class is foreseen in this legislation. Newer type of fast battleships, uh, whole set of battleships to replace the older battle wagons of the U.S. Navy, um, a new series of heavy cruisers, many, many more destroyers, hundreds of destroyers, very heavy and large submarines. All of this together with uh, money for new shipyard facilities, etc., up and down the coast, all of this is a consequence of fearing that there could be a disturbance navally uh, entering right into the Atlantic itself, maybe going to the Caribbean. These are frightening times as far as some of the alarmists in the U.S. Mm -hmm. press are pushing for it in, in this summer of 1940. Yeah, and the fruits of that, uh, essentially, by the time all these ships uh, start to appear 
in numbers, in large numbers, in um, just like the second half of 1943, and because it takes a long time to <laughs> build battleships and aircraft carriers and everything, uh, it's it it's um, it's it's practically like a completely different American Navy, um, uh, you know, from 1943 onwards than from uh, you know in than there was in 1941-1942. It's had some major changes in the overall structure and size and expectations of the Royal Navy. For one reason that many everybody knows about the very heavy uh, attacks upon and near, not quite total, but near elimination of the U.S. battle fleet in Pearl Harbor on the 7th of December 1941 in the Pearl Harbor attacks there. Uh, many of the ships are taken back to the West Coast where they are steadily rebuilt or strengthened and are ready for fighting after another year or so. But in the meantime, the Navy has had to rely, in the Pacific at least, chiefly upon its limited number of aircraft carriers to to fight and contest the Japanese advances, doing so very successfully at the smaller carrier battle of the Coral Sea and the large and very significant battle of Midway in June 1942. But then there is a gap while the U.S. Navy essentially waits for the new fleet to come. There will be very intensive fighting around in the Solomon Islands in 1942-43, but the real big change in the, trans- in, the, in the U.S. Navy, the transformation of that Navy, is going to come with the steady arrival of new aircraft carriers, large battleships, and heavy cruisers into Pearl Harbor from the middle of 1943 onwards. Yeah. Okay, um... I mean, back in time a little bit, uh, talk about the, uh, the Battle of the Atlantic. And, um, you know, it's uh, one thing I noted in the book um, that I never really thought about, that that really the, uh, the German surface fleet really ceases to be a threat in the Atlantic um, by the time, I mean, it's practically a non-entity uh, when, you know, what we... Uh, think in our heads as the Battle of the Atlantic uh, really gets underway, and you know, no heavy, no heavy German warship will enter the North Atlantic uh, after the sinking of the Bismarck in uh, was it mid 1941. So uh, the Battle of the Atlantic is really um, when you talk about the German Navy, it's really uh, primarily a battle of the U-boats uh, versus. Um, the uh, the merchant the the merchant ships of the British Empire and these other nations and uh, and and their convoy escorts and coastal command etc 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 yes so this is one of the the many great what ifs of the Second World War uh, Tim if uh, the head of the German Navy in 1939 Admiral Rader had been able to press his Führer uh, Adolf Hitler not to go to war over Poland then to keep the plan of steadily building a brand new, you know, giant force for the of surface ships for the German Navy, so that by 1943, 1944, there'd be so many more very, very large warships 
are ready to go out and contest command of the sea, if that had happened, the story would have been different. As it was, Admiral Rader had to be content with a smallish number of really very impressively built and constructed warships, but in, in almost isolated raiders. So the Graf Spee, uh, eventually caught by a Royal Navy and uh, battered off in the Battle of the River Plate and then sinking itself. Um, the Bismarck going out in uh, at the end of 19 of May 1941 and the Atlantic being pursued after it sunk the hood and uh, being brought to bay and then sunk. Uh, Scharnhorst sunk in the Battle of the North Cape. These are one-off actions in which the British, enjoying the uh, advantage of radar at sea and a larger number of heavy gun warships can, can maintain their command of the sea in the surface warfare story. Therefore, the story shifts even more so than early in the war to the U-boats versus the convoys and the escorts and the long-range escorting aircraft, as you nicely put it a few minutes ago. Yeah. And uh, you know, besides the, the, the war in the Atlantic, the, the maritime war in the Mediterranean, uh, at least in the United States, is obviously the least well-known of the maritime conflicts uh, in World War II, or the theaters in World War II, but it was a really, really uh, tough uh, slog for uh, <laughs> for the Royal Navy um, yes. in the Mediterranean. Could you talk a little about that, uh, you know, the, the yes. obstacles? Well, I, I, let me also introduce another thought to, to fellow naval historians. Uh, what do you do when you're writing... Uh, the story of the war at sea, either in the Napoleonic times or here in the Second World War, where the fighting occurs in not just one theater of war, but, but two or three theaters of war. And, and how do you structure the, the book uh, uh, to, to capture that? You just have single chapters on the Battle of the Atlantic, and then you jump to a chapter on the Battle of the Pacific or the Mediterranean struggles. Or do you try to take it, as I do here, in sort of chronological order? So that um, you know, chapter six in the book is called uh, 1942, the fighting most year in all of naval history. Because of the struggles going on simultaneously in the Pacific, where, you know, you get midway, etc. Uh, simultaneously in the Atlantic with the convoys rising to a height there. And then uh, in the Mediterranean, these very, very bitterly fought uh, battles over command and control of the narrow seas in the line of communications going through the Mediterranean to the island fortress of Malta and then further east to Alexandria. The Royal Navy trying to supply Malta time after time uh, in order that Malta can be the air base, which would be uh, the, something which can interrupt the German and the Italian lines from, from Italy itself to North Africa. Um, and some of those battles, some of those convoys, are like convoy called Pedestal in the middle of 1942, about the hardest fought convoys in world naval history, until you go back to some of the battles of, uh, of the Anglo-Dutch wars in the middle of the 
17th century. It's, it is a shame that the Mediterranean battles and the convoy battles there and the Malta convoy story is much less known in this country as naval historians think it should be. Mm. Um, do you know, did the Royal Navy lose more warships in the Mediterranean than they did in the Atlantic? Do you know? Uh, no, I mean, not talking convoy, uh, uh, merchant ships, but I mean, actual Royal Navy uh, warships. Uh, did, do you know? It loses the ship Barham, which is, uh, is torpedoed and goes down very quickly. It loses the famous aircraft carrier uh, Ark Royal. It, it loses another aircraft carrying one of the Malta convoys. It loses a large number of its heavy cruisers, its light cruisers, and its destroyers. So in terms of heavy warships, the Mediterranean battles probably equal mm. the losses that the Royal Navy has in the Atlantic with the aircraft carrier Courageous, with the Hood, uh, with the Glorious. Um, it's probably the case that in those narrow waters of the Mediterranean, as much tonnage of the Royal Navy was sunk there as it was in the whole North Atlantic. Mm. Ah, that's incredible. Okay. Uh, now, uh, uh, back to the Pacific. Um, you say in the books that the, uh, the Japanese attacks on December 8th, uh, December 7th and 8th, so um, not just the attack on Pearl Harbor, but um, you know the attack on the Philippines, the simultaneous attack, really, on the Philippines, Guam... Uh, Wake Island, uh, all the U.S. possessions, and then on the British Empire and Malaya and Hong Kong and Singapore, then also uh, going into the the Dutch East Indies um, all simultaneously, uh, that this uh, constitutes one of the greatest acts in the history of modern international power politics, Uh, more important, uh, you say, than, than the fall of France. And perhaps just as important as uh, as Operation Barbarossa, as the as the the German invasion of the Soviet Union uh, back in June of that year. Uh, so why so? Why why does this uh, Japanese onslaught constitute one of uh, the greatest acts in the history of modern power politics? All right, I want to indulge myself here, but by, <laughs> by imagining that once again I am a reader of the New York Times <laughs> in uh, late 1941, going into 1942, uh, there, there must be a time when you know one you, you almost ran out of the house to shout over the backyard fence to your neighbor, like in in June 21st, 22nd, 1941. Have you got the news? Uh, Hitler's invaded Russia or something like that. You know, there's this, this enormous transformation on land and land power attacks with Operation Barbarossa. And then five months later, the same guy runs out of the house on the Sunday morning, shouts over the fence to his neighbor, have you just got the news the Japanese have attacked Pearl? So from a conflict scenario of most of 1941, where the British Empire's fight with France defeated, is fighting against the uh, Axis combo of Mussolini's Italy and Hitler's um, Nazi Germany, uh, you get the transformation, first of all, of Russia being brought into the war because of the German attack upon Russia and Churchill allying with Stalin. And then just a little bit later, at the very end of the war, this other transformation of the most astonishing, wide-ranging, and at the beginning, very successful array of Japanese attacks all over the Western Pacific, 
and all over um, all over Southeast Asia. Quite, quite stunning. Bringing at last the United States of America into the war. And this is a transformative action. It becomes a world war. It also brings into the war this neutral, uh, wobbly, isolationist state, which nonetheless has the greatest concentration of, of military resources and productive capacities of any of the six combatants of the Second World War. Yeah. And this is what I mean by transformative. It is mm -hmm. for, a, for a one particular stage, two or three years of the war in the Pacific, oh, transformative because Japan almost looks as if it's turning all of East Asia into its you know, East Asia co-prosperity sphere, mm -hmm. as it boasted, and might even be able to knock out China if it really gets control of everywhere else. And then the weights begin to swing as the American uh, surge in productivity and output in aircraft and warships comes more and more to the fore as 1943 unfolds. Yeah, the, the journey uh, for the United States to becoming basically the 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 unipolar uh, global hegemon begins with the attack on Pearl Harbor it, it is the irony that what Japan tries to avoid happening a dominance of the Western Pacific world by the anglo-american powers or by the United States itself is brought to fruition by 1945 by the attack on Pearl Harbor provoking the American public and the Congress to come into the war. One of the loveliest paintings of Ian Marshall's near the very end of the book Victory at Sea shows the Anglo-American and other allied navies, the navies of the conquest, resting at harbor in Tokyo Bay in September 1945, and in the background of the Ian Marshall's paintings of the American and British battleships and aircraft carriers, in the background you see Mount Fuji, uh, and then the sun setting, as it were, on Japan's imperial efforts. Uh, the war is over, and there is a new hegemon in world affairs, which political scientists like to talk about with great uh, interest. Mm. Yeah, and the, it, um, the Imperial Japanese Navy, so we discussed this right before the podcast, um, It's it looks like a world beater in, at the end of 1941 and the first half of 1942. I mean, it's just on a complete roll, uh, you know, taking, you know, helping uh, Japanese army take over all these territories in the uh, Southeast Pacific. And, uh, you know, not only that, it's it's uh, it's going on raids into the Indian Ocean and and, uh, you know, uh, raiding uh, British imperial possessions like Ceylon and and sinking Royal Navy uh, ships in the in the Indian Ocean. Uh, but right soon after that, the wheels uh, essentially they start to fall off the bus. You, know, you mentioned Coral Sea and Midway and then the fighting around Guadalcanal. Uh, how did the the Imperial Japanese Navy go from performing so well through mid 1942 um, to so spottily uh, afterwards. I mean, it's, it's just the drop off in the performance of the of the Japanese Navy is uh, very stark after after mid 1942. 
It is, and I do wonder, because I'm ignorant on this detailed side on, on the Japanese high command and what the cluster of Japanese admirals thought about Perfect. things, yeah. whether there was any you know, really anguished discussion or exchange of letters between uh, Japanese admirals by, say, the middle or second half of 1942, saying, get, put, get your act together, guys. We can still win this. What do you mean by these defeats and these uh, this falling back? As you say, some of the wheels started to come off the wagon as early as six months or seven months after the uh, massive successes of the Pearl Harbor attack and the simultaneous array of conquests going down to Hong Kong, Malay, and into the Indian Ocean. Was it just hubris? Was it that the uh, planners in Tokyo didn't have a more, a more sustained strategy and just wanted to create this uh, sort of area of, of protection and conquest and just imagine that if the Americans battered by Pearl Harbor had the nerve to come and try to penetrate it, we would just keep hitting them on the nose until they agreed to a negotiated peace, giving us the conquest and the need for raw materials and additional areas of uh, supply in, in the Western Pacific. Uh, was it that they were just stunned by the losses of four aircraft carriers at Midway and never got over that? I think there's more to it than that in explaining the, uh, the fact that the Japanese Navy doesn't look so good after the middle of 1942. There are some really structural and strategic weaknesses in that uh, fleet itself. Look at the fact that its submarines, which are really quite effective, fast, and significant players and have the best torpedoes in the world, never are really employed in a... a cutting off of sea lanes of communication role. They are frittered away trying to support fast actions by their own battle fleet. Look at the fact that they don't have much in the way of coordination between the aircraft carrier forces and the main battle forces. Um, look at the fact that they really do not significantly get to grips with their big weakness in fuel supply for their Navy and begin to be badly hit once U.S. submarines are able to sink warships with their improved torpedoes from 1942-43 onwards. This is a fleet which enjoys a lot of uh, prestige and hubris. Once the early aircraft carriers and their uh, trained crews are, are reduced in significant numbers, it can't do anything very well at all. Yeah. Um, all right. God, there's so much stuff I want to get to, but we're already running out of time. So I want to get to um, uh, just a little questions about the present, um, about uh, whether today in the United States, whether we are building the right kind of Navy with the right kind of ships and, uh, and platforms. Cause, uh, I think, you know, to the book and that's really part of the problem. Some of these navies face is they're not, um, uh, building the right sort of Navy for the war they need to fight. And then, um, you know, obviously at the beginning of the war, everyone thinks that the, you know, the, 
the battleship, the Dreadnought, is the is the king of the sea. Uh, and you know the, the 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 more battleships you had, the more powerful your fleet, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the aircraft carrier uh, and and air power in general, uh, land-based air power, showed uh, really in the period of year between 19, late 1940 and 1941 that the age of dominance of the battleship and you know other you know heavily gunned, heavily armored warships, uh, you know that time is over. Uh, these are obsolete uh, platforms. You know, at the end of the war, you make a point of noting how you know these uh, these Iowa class <laughs> uh, battleships and the King George V uh, class battleships are basically I, all they're really reduced to is you know uh, shelling uh, shore installations and protecting <laughs> protecting the carriers and other ships from uh, from kamikazes. Um, and so I asked that question now because we're sort of in that same situation uh, in the Pacific with the rise of the Chinese Navy and their ability to uh, project power and to uh, keep uh, and to limit uh, other navies from the use of, you know, say, the South China Sea or whatnot. Um, because I remember, uh, and I spoke about this with uh, a gentleman on a, on a podcast uh, uh, last week, um, but... Uh, I was reading an article in a magazine uh, basically about uh, our new uh, uh, nuclear power carriers, these uh, super carriers that we're building that are uh, so massive, uh, so expensive, and, uh, and you know, they, these ships hold, you know, 5,000 uh, sailors and marines on them and, you know, just a massive amount of men in these ships. And basically, the the argument the article was making that um, these aircraft carriers are not worth uh, well, we shouldn't be building anymore because they're not worth what we're <laughs> what we're paying for them because we cannot because they are so large and they cost so much and because they have uh, so many men in, in, that crew them that we can't possibly risk losing them in a, a fight with, uh, say, China or whoever else, uh, because to lose one would be uh, basically an unthinkable tragedy. Uh, you can imagine the um, what would happen in the United States if we actually lost one of these ships and, and, and the ship went down with most of its crew. Uh, and that because of that, since we cannot uh, uh, afford to use one, we cannot use them in the way that they are intended to be used. And if we can't use them, uh, then they're of no use, and we should look to other uh, platforms to gain an edge in um, in the South China Sea. When you think of the rise of you know drone warfare and the the, the vast improvements with anti-ship missiles and whatnot, uh, do you agree with that assessment of aircraft carriers? Are they is the time of the aircraft carrier um, as it peaked, is it coming to an end? Uh, should we be thinking of other platforms to be using to project uh, American naval power other than uh, aircraft carriers? So let's. Sorry, let's, very long, very, <laughs> very long uh, uh, question well, there. Well, well, let's pick it apart. Ed. There's two two narratives here, two stories uh, linked by the the 80 year divide between, say, the 1942. Uh, back then and uh, 2022 here. The story back then is of 
the heavy investment made in the 1920s and 30s by U.S. Navy into a, a, a battleship and a battleship heavy uh, naval force, which then as the war unfolds and shows the potential of long-range aircraft carrier and massive aircraft uh, attacks, uh, re- makes redundant, or at least it makes only secondary, the role of those heavy warships like battleships and heavy cruisers. And they go to this supporting role, important in itself, but not what was planned for. So if that is the case that the Navy had to transform itself and think of newer, more efficient and effective platforms of war, is it also the case that as we look across the Pacific right now and into the future, we have over heavily invested in very, very expensive platforms of war, the nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, which may not be the best weapon system to fight against a rising Chinese Navy which seems to be, at least until it gets its own big aircraft carrier fleet constructed in the, 90, in the 2030s, it seems to be putting a lot of money into asymmetric warfare. Masses and masses of attack submarines and masses and masses of long-range, medium-range, uh, ocean-skimming uh, missile systems, uh, which, if fight at our warships if we get close to the uh, East Asian littoral might put a hole or two in some of our biggest aircraft, that is the aircraft carriers themselves, and cause that calamity that you're referring to. Does any American admiral or captain in charge of his uh, nuclear-powered aircraft carrier want to get too close to the Chinese shore or even too close to the eastern shores of um, of Taiwan or even in the Philippine Sea in such a potentially dangerous and hostile environment. And if we have invested heavily in weapon systems which cannot be used, or if used, can run the risk of the catastrophe described in Jim Stavridis' new book on the year 2034, as futuristic history look at a conflict in the Western Pacific. Are we putting our money into the wrong type of weapons platforms? And should we be thinking of a different sort of structured Navy? This is a real hot potato. Uh, The U.S. submariners can stay to one side saying we have, you know, our strategic nuclear our strategic nuclear navy as the ultimate deterrent, and we have our fast attack submarines to help out our advance of sea power. But the debate about the future of a large surface warship is very acute at present. Okay. All right. Well, I had uh, oh God, tons of other uh, questions for you. The book is just so uh, fascinating and interesting. Uh, but we're out of time, so I will uh, end by asking you uh, just one more question, and it's the one question I ask uh, you know, everybody that comes on the podcast. And that is, uh, uh, what would you like the audience to get out of this book? You know, what's the what's the one thing you would want a reader to take away from reading it? I like the reader to I I I, I suppress my 
wish to draw attention again to the to the wonderful paintings of Ian Marshall and would say, would you please kind of look at the two linked chapters of Chapter 7, The War at Sea in 1943, and Chapter 8, The Big Transformation of the Global Power Balances, and ask yourself, uh, and send me a note if you want to, does this work? Does this type of looking at history underneath and below the productive resources and changes and the history of fighting on the surface, can you put it together within the confines of a single book and within two linked chapters? I tried to do it there. I'd be interested to know what the readership and the listenership thinks of that effort. Thank you, Tim. All right, great. Well, uh, before we go, is there anything else uh, you'd like to uh, plug? Any appearances coming up or anything else you're working on? Or uh, you know, I have any- an array of uh, appearances. This is, this is the age of the podcast. This is the age <laughs> of the radio interview. Yep. Uh, this is the age in which one can slowly again, post-COVID or half post-COVID, go and give talks in Manhattan or up in Boston on the book itself in the course of the next few months. Uh, It's now been about seven years since I put down my ambition and intention to try to do some sort of rethinking, reconsideration, and a new edition of Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. I'm on sabbatical leave in the spring, and that is what I'm going to turn my attention to. But thanks for asking. Great, great. Yeah, that sounds... uh, I can't wait to... I can't wait to read that, uh, the update, because, uh, you know, so besides Victory at Sea, make sure you guys go out and buy uh, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. It's, like I said, it's one of the uh, uh, preeminent works of <laughs> of uh, late 20th century history, so and you'd be doing yourself a favor uh, by picking it up. But again, uh, the book Victory at Sea, which we've been talking about, Naval Power and the Transformation of the Global Order in World War II, um, again, uh by far the prettiest book I've had uh, to uh, the pleasure of reading for this podcast. It's a really, really uh, wonderfully put together book. Uh, uh, you know, uh, again, the, uh, the paintings here of, of Ian Marshall are just a, a joy to um, look at and ponder, uh, especially, uh, you know, uh, when you're, uh, you know, reading along with the text and everything. So, uh, I highly, highly recommend uh, this book to everybody, everybody out there. And again, uh, Dr. Kennedy, thank you very, very much for your time today and to, for coming on the podcast and discussing the book with me. I appreciate it. All right. My pleasure. Thank you all. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. And again, uh, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends. And if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can reach out to me at tbenson at heartland.org. That's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And uh, we also have our uh, Twitter account for the for the podcast. You can reach out to us there. You know, uh, give us a follow, send us any questions or comments. Uh, you know, send us a DM or whatnot. Um, you can reach out to us there at uh, what is our handle at illbooks at i l l books. So check us out there. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, mom. Bye bye.